This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, an airline you've probably never heard of may become the first all-electric in the world. Lots of action from the AEA Electronics Roundup. Also, somebody you know pretty well flew the new Cirrus. Speaking of airplanes, Piper's come out with a new super cheap trainer. All right. You ready to do some Hangar Talk, David? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterattack final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, our guest this week, um, interesting guy, funny guy, Pete Ring from Free Flight. They make uh, ADSB products. Yeah, Free Flight's been around for a pretty long time, and I'm anxious to hear from Pete a little bit more about how they serve the GA marketplace. Yeah, so we'll talk to him a little bit later. But first, let's get right into it. It's a really busy time with AEA and Sun and Fun going on as we record this. So, um, But first, we want to talk a little bit about what's going on outside of those places, and that is Harbor Air. Uh, an airline you probably, unless you live in the Pacific Northwest, have never heard of. They're, they're apparently North America's largest seaplane airline. They're based in Vancouver. They have a plan to go all electric. They do, Ian, and this is surprising. They want to be the first completely electric commercial seaplane fleet. And gosh darn, they fly pretty big, heavy uh, de Havilland beavers, otters, and twin otters. And to me, that sounds like that's a that's a... That's a big chunk to chew. Yeah, I know. I mean, at this point, we're talking, you know, two-seat trainers being viable, but uh, they feel like they've got a motor that's going to be able to support those big boys. Indeed. And uh, also, they have been practicing, basically, they've been doing some some test bed practicing with that motor on a, on basically on a fuselage and an airframe, but uh, hasn't flown yet. Now, what do you see are some of the big hindrances for something like this? Well, and you know, people are always talking about the, you know, the batteries and the weight of the batteries, but I guess with their operation, it's um it's kind of perfect for electric because they said their average flight time is, you know, somewhere less than a half an hour, maybe 15 to 25 minutes because they're hopping between islands. And so for an operation like that, electric could make a lot of sense. Well, I guess you're right, Ian, and um you know, reading a little bit more into the story, 
it's a thir- like a 30-minute flight would require about a 30-minute charge-up. So that's not unreasonable. I guess it takes about 30 minutes maybe to load people up, that kind of thing. I guess, um, yeah. You know, I, I could kind of see that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, now they're using a motor I've never heard of, which is not surprising because I'm, I'm not an electric uh, aircraft motor expert by any means. But um, Magna X, the Magna 500, puts out, this is incredible, 750 horsepower out of their all-electric motor. They're based, I think, in Seattle, which makes it kind of a geographical partnership. Well, I'll tell you what, 750 horsepower, all-electric, I mean, that pretty much rivals any kind of turbine engine you would have out there. And and you do need that power to lift a, a beaver with a, a load of passengers. Yeah, absolutely. So the plan is they're going to start flying, I think, uh, maybe the end of this year. They're looking maybe certification. They're going to, I guess, look at certifying the motor and then doing STCs with the Beavers. They're looking at all that, I think, about 2021. So don't go out there and buy that ticket quite yet if you want to fly an electric Beaver, but uh, maybe in the future. That's right. Keep your eye on uh, on Harbor Air and on the Magna X new engine. Uh, can't wait to hear a little bit more about it and see if they can make it really happen. Yeah, that would be so cool. Speaking of kind of the future is today, you know, AEA, which is a show not a lot of pilots attend, but it's a huge show, uh, has a lot of impacts for you as a pilot and an aircraft owner, because this is where a lot of new avionics hardware is introduced. That's the Aircraft Electronics Association. Uh, It happened last week in Palm Springs and some really interesting announcements from some big names there. That's right, Ian. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and, and, and take the reins and say that it looks like Bendix King is back in the game here. It's surprising to me that they have uh, introduced a series of new autopilots and engine monitors at that Aircraft Electronics Association convention in California. And, uh, you know, they've had some, they have some partnerships with other industry professionals. And I think this helped get some of these to the market. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the partnerships they made with JPI for the engine monitoring system and also with TrueTrack for the autopilots. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to see them partner with folks. I mean, they've done a little bit of this in the past. They partnered with Aspen on some stuff. But I think, you know, when you're talking about software being such a big part of the future of avionics, it makes a lot of sense. And they said, by the way, it's really interesting because Paul Bertarelli just wrote for AdWeb, I think it was like this week, saying that Garmin has just done it. They've just taken over. There's no question about it anymore. But then you've got Benix King, who said they had 20% growth last year. Yeah, I was surprised to see that, uh, that, that number from Greg Cohen, the president. But I think think that's uh, that's significant Ian uh, 20% and you know they could claw back out and get more and yeah Garmin's a big dog but don't forget we have other manufacturers out there that we're going to talk about in just a minute also yeah yeah like Aspen they talked about uh, you know I think their their announcements at AEA were mostly centered around pricing special pricing and keeping that going but it's funny you look at the scope of of what they announced, and it just goes to show at how deep their product line is now. That is surprising. The Aspen Evolution, I, can you believe it came out 12 years ago? No. No, I remember flying it. That's crazy. That's amazing. That's crazy. Such a nice a nice unit, too, and it just makes a panel so clean and so modern looking. Yeah. But yeah. Um, they came out with the Evolution Max flight displays. That was a big news this year. And, uh, and the pricing, again, the pricing looks pretty interesting. You can upgrade your units already um, purchased for $3,000 for a single and $49.95, that's $4,995 for an EFD 1000 Pro Max and um, $5,995 for EFD 1000 Pro Max PFD. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Aspen is, they are, they're great products. I mean, and they've got such flexibility. You're talking, you know, and from the beginning, this was their philosophy. So you've got, you know, the 1000 that is this full featured PFD and the Max just is a little more reliable unit, uh, brighter colors, things like that. The 500, I guess what it is, is um, it's the 1000, but without the duplicate sensor. So it can't serve as a backup to the PFD. But if you've got like a three screen system, it might be a nice third screen. And you can just, that's so cool about the Aspen is like you can do one screen, two screens, three screens. You can have backups, non-backups. You can do VFR displays, IFR displays. And so it's really, it's whatever you want to choose. It's a true building block and it sure gives airplane owners versatility and takes us into the 21st century. Yeah. Yep, definitely. But, you know, Garmin, I think, stole the show there in terms of announcements. They did. Um, of course. So, yeah, <laughs> yep, yep, they did. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about non-TSO in the past, and um, that's going to hit us here again with Garmin. The the G3X Touch, which uh, experimental users have loved for a number of years now, Right. Uh, that is now in certificated aircraft. It's approved. They came out with it. It's done. You can buy it today. In fact, it's, uh, we're going to talk about another uh, aircraft company that's going to use that in just a couple minutes but yeah the g3x touch display that's pretty cool and it's got standard wireless connectivity synthetic vision and optional display redundancy advanced autopilot compatibility and engine monitoring that's like the whole package yeah yeah it really is and you can have it for less than ten thousand bucks um depending on what screen size you want the other thing that they announced which i just think is so cool and so smart they're GPS 175 and GNX 375. These are smaller form color touchscreen GPS navigators uh, with WAS. I totally agree with you on this, Ian, and, and I think that timing was right too because um, if I'm not mistaken, they replace a lot of the legacy units, which would be something like a King KLN 89, 90, 94 series, which were a little tricky to work with to begin with. It was harder to see the displays. Uh, the the software was a little funky. You know, the operating system was a little weird. Um, but this also helps replace the Garmin, their own GPS 150, 155 series. So it's a pretty versatile new navigator box, and it's got that same form fit as a, as a KLN 89, 90, 94. It's kind of slim. Yeah. Yeah, so all those sort of millennial airplanes that uh, Cessna put out, all those now are ripe for upgrades. And they're, um, the navigators are 5000 and 8000 bucks respectively. So pretty competitive when you're looking at Garmin's other products. It is, and we know that $5,000 and $8,000 is nothing to sneeze at. But nonetheless, you're getting you know current technology, a real versatile box, and, and super basically helping you plan for the, the the present and get set up for the future. So it's all good to see. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, present and future, lucky man, you uh, flew the new Cirrus. Oh, gosh, Ian, I got to tell you what, hats off and a big thanks to uh, to Cirrus's Ivy McIver, who's, uh, who's an excellent pilot. She's also a tailwheel backcountry pilot, too. But yeah, um, this is one of those one of those assignments that you hate to turn down. And I think Tom Haynes was supposed to go and he had a conflict. So, Hey, we had to do it. You know, (laughs) you had to step in. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Pinch hitter. So, well, first of all, first of all, you got to, you know, in, in the spirit of transparency, you got to tell us what you, what you got to do that day. Right on. So this, uh, basically the Cirrus SR 22 T S E Arrive is their new special edition, model. And so what we're trying to do, what Cirrus is trying to do with that aircraft 
is let pilots know that it's about adventure and it's about going someplace and and taking an airplane and flying it and actually enjoying it with someone else, a, a new adventure with someone else. So they partnered with Michelin. So the whole idea was to go and have a Michelin-starred meal. Have you watched any Chop, Ian? Any of the show on? I haven't watched Chop, but I, I I know Michelin. Yeah, sure. So sure. Uh, so Michelin, you know, from the guidebooks, and Chopped, you know, obviously has uh, prepared me by watching all these chefs in the background <laughs> prepare their their special meals with special flair. So we went to a, a place called the, and I'll probably mispronounce it, but it's either the Gramercy Tavern or Gramercy Tavern. Do you I, know? I it's think in it's New York the Gramercy. City. Gramercy. Ta- I'm very uncultured. Gramercy but, Tavern. Yeah, yeah, in New York. Yep. I knew I'd mispronounce it. But let me tell you what, this place is a Michelin-starred restaurant. It was outstanding. We went there for lunch, and We did not have drinks, of course. We flew there, and we're flying back. We flew into Teterboro Airport, mm. and that was an experience in and of itself. The wind was howling. Ivy took control of the aircraft for that landing, thankfully. <laughs> and uh, But... Y- when you land there, Ian, you're really super close to uh, New York City Midtown, you mm-hmm. know, that area. And, that, and that's where the Gramercy Tavern was in the Flatiron Building in the Midtown area. And it, like 45 minutes later, you're transported from Teterboro to the heart of the Big Apple. Yeah. I thought that was ultra cool. Yeah, that is super cool. And so, uh, and then you flew back to Frederick, right? I did. So that was my leg to come back to Frederick. Well, uh, I'll spare everyone the details um, uh, uh, the food that we had for lunch, but let me just tell you <laughs> that it was a fine dining experience that I would highly recommend to anybody. And if you don't live on the East Coast, you still could uh, get that SRT, SR22T rather, SE Special Edition, and go for a Michelin lunch in Chicago, San Fran, Washington, and elsewhere. Hmm. But um, yeah, I flew back. So this is the first time that I flew a Cirrus SR22. And to me, it was an eye-opening experience. And I know that you have a little experience in the in the Cirrus line too, correct? Yeah, just a little bit. You know, I've flown a couple of different vintage uh, models. So what did you think? I mean, after hearing so much about them, reading so much about them, what did you think? <laughs> well, I wrote a story that said that, first of all, the seats cupped my derriere like a sports car seat, <laughs> which, uh, which is kind of funny. But the whole thing is that, you know, I thought it was plush. I thought the interior of the aircraft was plush. I really liked it. It was well built. It was stout. It was put together. And then there's the avionics package. And the mm-hmm. avionics package, it completely baffled me at first. But Ivy told me to just layer it on piece by piece, you know, start out. Start out with your VFR instruments that you know that you're going to need and just, you know, add in the fun stuff as you can, as you could. Yeah. Ian, I really like the visibility out the cockpit, looking past those, uh, you know, those 10 inch screens there. I was uh, looking out that front windshield. It was just massive. And, you know, you could see a lot in front of you. The the side windows were good. I felt like I was protected. I did like the fact uh, that we had a, a parachute with us if we needed it mm-hmm. and the airplane handled so well it was just it was i mean it was tight i don't know yeah. how else to describe it yeah yeah it is very cool i mean I, can you imagine you know some people buy these things and learn to fly in them could you imagine this being your first entrance into general aviation so it's like you you've bought the airplane you finally get it you're flying it 
And then uh, somebody like with an old, uh, I don't know, I don't mean to disparage anybody's airplane, but, you know, some old Skyhawk or Cherokee or, you know, whatever is like, come on, let's go flying. And you get into it. Can you imagine the culture shock you'd have stepping from a Cirrus to that airplane if, if the Cirrus was your entrance? Well, it, it is a total culture shock. And then the starting with the panel, I mean, that's that Garmin Cirrus perspective was just it blew my mind. Yep. And then um, the engine is 315 horsepower turbocharged continental engine that you know that's another you know kind of a kind of a feather in your cap is a yeah, high-powered a engine but the airplane didn't handle adversely with something like that i didn't i didn't notice notice a, a huge amount of Everest yaw but it did have yaw control and that's another thing it had a, you know super easy to work autopilot and uh, a lot of stuff was really intuitive yeah you know the multi multi-function display in front of you you know the dual wasp gps Navcoms. I mean, it's an incredible amount of, of of material. It's just a stunning cockpit. I must say, it is. It's it's they're they're cool airplanes. I mean, they deserve, I think, the the accolades and and the orders and everything else. I know there's um, there's a group. They're they're small but vocal of uh, serious haters out there, and and I would say just fly one because they are very cool. But uh, that's that's so neat that you finally got to to fly one. It, yeah, it was great. And I'll just wrap it up with this. You know, the the side stick control was something that I was worried about, but it was very intuitive. And, um, you know, the airplane handled well. It, it was a, a good, rock-solid platform. And Ivy coached me in on the landing uh, back to our home base at Frederick. And my goodness, Ian, uh, I mean, I touched down smooth as butter. I mean, and I looked over and I said to Ivy, I, you know, I, I'm sure you jumped in to help me out. And she said, no, Dave, it was all you. It was all you. So <laughs> Good man. Good man. I, I, well, I mean, it says a lot about the airplane. Yeah. That's something that really I wasn't ready to experience. And it was pretty darn easy to fly. So That's cool. Uh, I would love to buy a, a Cirrus SR20 if I could afford one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what we should say, what what is the new 22T SE Arrive, uh go for these days? $1.1 million, but it's got all the bells and whistles. There's not anything else you can put on that aircraft. It comes with everything. You know, flight into known ice. It's got the autopilot. It's got the air conditioning. You know, it's light years ahead of the Mooney M20C that I'm used to. Now, is that does that include the dinner? It does. Oh, in fact, okay. it does oh, well, include in that case, the dinner. It's a yes. Oh, my gosh. Why didn't you say so? <laughs> <laughs> it does include the dinner for four, actually, is what oh, it includes. Oh, and fantastic. Plus Holy five, cow. well, five Bose uh, top-of-the-line headsets, too, and more. Oh, nice. So, okay. Uh, okay. yeah, it's a really interesting package. It's an interesting marketing package. I had a great time. Ivy was a great host. And if anyone out there listening to us on the podcast ever runs into Ivy, uh, she is a class act. Yeah, very cool. I have met Ivy. She's great. She's great. Neat. She's a great representative for the company. So, very cool. Good experience. Hey, so let's move on to the big news so far from Sun and Fun. Uh, now, disclaimer, we're recording this on Wednesday, so you know may, more may break by the time we finish recording this or throughout the rest of the week. But I think this will be, I should say, I'll predict the future and say this will be the biggest piece of news from Sun and Fun, and that is that Piper has introduced a new airplane, kind of a new concept on an old airplane, the Pilot 100 and the Pilot 100i. Ian, this was a big surprise to folks like us in the industry. And um, the 100, uh, which is a VFR, the Pilot 100 is a VFR model. The 100i is the instrument model. Kind of makes sense. And just let's cut to the chase real quick. First of all, 
these two aircraft are less than three hundred thousand dollars. Yes, that's a lot of money. Yeah, but it is not uh, compared to what they were replacing it. Two hundred fifty-nine grand for the one hundred, and the I model is two hundred eighty-five thousand. But you don't get everything you would get. Uh, with the Archer that it's based on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's a different engine. Uh, actually, a Continental engine, which I think is really interesting. They're going with the IO370 Prime. And uh, the other thing is two seats. Now, this is a really interesting concept. I, I know it sounds crazy, but, you know, Robinson has had really good success when they did the R44 Cadet. They took out the two back seats and and used it for training. And this is the exact same concept. That makes sense to me. And um, the other thing that you can do, you can actually add a third seat to the VFR model, but the IFR model in the 100i does have that third seat for an observer. So if I am taking a lesson with you, an instrument lesson, then one of our you know colleagues could be in the back seat, kind of listening and taking notes, and you know sort of getting the feel of the IFR system. I think that's a fantastic idea. It is, and let's face it: unless you're a small kid, unless you have two small kids, let's say in the back, an Archer, uh, you know, PA twenty eight is not going to take four people. So it's like you shouldn't be filling up those four seats anyway. So two or three seats, I think, is a much better option. The other thing, you know, you mentioned the G3X, uh, so that will be the standard panel. Yeah. And I think this is a fantastic idea, you know, for a smaller flight school or, uh, as, as Simon called them, you know, self-funded or self-financed. Um, this is a really reasonable airframe, and it's proven and widely accepted. People love it. I mean, this is a great, great move, I think. It is, it is. Now, I'm worried about some of our friends that we recently um, had on the podcast, the Vulcan Air folks, you know, they're... Vulcaner V1.0. It's a four-seat high-wing airplane that's similar to a 172 for $279,000, so 20000 bucks more than than the 100, um, the Pilot 100. So I wonder about the competition for something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it might have shown the market that something like this is possible and, and needed because Vulcanair has had some early success. So I, uh, it's it could be that they've paved the way there. So They have. They have. And be, before we leave this, I must say that uh, there might be news from Cirrus in the training market, but we'll have to see. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that Piper announced um, is a massive, massive order for the, the traditional PA-28 and others. That's right. It's for up to 240 aircraft, in. it's to L3 Technologies Commercial Training Solutions, and they have multiple locations, and we are talking about a huge order, as you just mentioned, the largest order in Piper's history. Yeah, they are just killing it. It's amazing. Um, really, really need to see their success there. So, And I, I think that pilot will be a, a big success as well, especially from small mom-and-pop flight schools. That's right. And, you know, we've talked about uh, Piper throwing the gauntlet down for Textron Cessna. You know, we recently had a podcast and we talked about Piper's largest ever order. And that, that was at the top of the year. And here again, they have another order that tops that order. They are going gangbusters. I am very impressed with that. And this is for, um, as you mentioned, it was for uh, uh, 240 aircraft, but the Archer TX and the twin-engine Seminole model, so it's a, for a variety of aircraft. Yep, yep, so really, really good for them, good for them. Hey, want to talk about ADS-B, uh, finish up by talking about ADS-B. We're going to bring Pete on in a minute, and I want to talk to him about this as well. But the FAA just published, now this is a mouthful, but it uh, it's important, the Statement of Policy for Authorizations to Operators of Aircraft that are not equipped with ADS-B out equipment. Basically, what that means is, 
Uh, the FAA is saying, if you don't equip with ADSB, this is what's going to happen to you. That's right. And so they are they are basically um, putting their foot down, as, as our, our parents would tell us back in the day, saying that, uh, look, you cannot be flying around and ask for a quote-unquote pop-up ADSB clearance because that will not happen. So do not plan on doing that. Um, and it definitely lays down the rules, uh, you know, for ADSB um, flying in the near future once 2020, you know, January 1st, 2020 comes into, into being. Yeah. So I think a lot of people have been wondering, first of all, you know, there's always rumors about they're pushing back the mandate. I think this clearly shows uh, that wasn't going to happen before, but this clearly shows um, still it's not going to happen. And the FAA say in January 2nd, 2020, if you want to fly an aircraft that's not equipped with ADSB and airspace where it's required, which is basically where transponder is today, you have to go through a flight by flight. I don't want to call it a waiver because that means specific things with with regulations. Uh, we'll call it an authorization, a flight by flight authorization. And and to do that, you can't, you cannot do it in the air. You'll have to basically request this at least one hour prior to the flight. Now I should back up and say I don't know if that's via telephone or if there will be some online way to do it, but you must let them know and in a request for the authorization at least an hour prior to your flight. Yeah. And they're saying that uh, for operators who maybe have regular scheduled flights or if you're going to be a frequent contributor to this, a frequent requester, uh, they're just going to say no. So if, you know, if you're thinking, oh, I'll just game the system, I'm not going to equip and I'll just request an authorization. I know when I'm going to fly. It's not going to happen. Right. Now, now I was thinking about a couple of things and you and I were chatting a little bit about this before the podcast. Now, if you and I go ahead and buy that 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 Robinson that you were talking about or that Piper or that Cirrus, then um, or the Vulcan Air, then we um, if we needed to ferry it somewhere to get ADSB put in it, if it wasn't in it. It sounds like that this is a mechanism that would allow us to do that on a one-off uh, issue. I think so. I think so. Um, and, you know, they say you're going to have to put in the reason, so it's got to be a good one. I think that's a really good one. You know, there, are, there are, I'm sure are many others. Maybe you need to go have maintenance done to it or um, something like that. But, but yeah, as a, as a rule, it will not be usable as a normal travel flying sort of uh, sort of device. And the whole point is really the FAA said that they did not want to penalize other ADSB equipped aircraft by operators who choose who choose not to equip their aircraft with ADSB out equipment. So I think in plain language. I think it's saying, listen, we want the airspace to be safer and we don't want to jeopardize folks who are playing by the new rules mm -hmm. with folks who are, you know, not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know that people maybe away from urban areas might think, oh, I don't need ADSB because I don't fly where a transponder is required. But I would say, look at the regs. We've got a graphic on the website that shows it. You'd be surprised. I think you um, people often go near rural airspace and not even know it. So um, I would say, man, just pony up a little bit of money. Well, it's not a little bit, but pony up the money, get ADS pay out, and do it fast because the deadline is approaching and shops are packed. That's right, and you really do need to get on board with the with your avionics uh, repair facility to get that scheduled in. And uh, that is something you should not wait until the last minute and, and think that it's going to happen because it very well 
might not because of their scheduling. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, the guy who is really qualified to talk about all this, Pete Ring from Free Flight Systems. Uh, we sat down, had a good chat about ADSB, Free Flight, kind of where they're going, where they've been, and uh, what the future of ADSB is for all of us. Pete Ring is the Vice President of Business Development and Chief Strategy Officer for Free Flight Systems. Uh, Pete, you've been a pilot since 2000, a private commercial instrument. You're a board member of the Aircraft Electronics Association, uh, studied at Daniel Webster College, uh, worked for Avidine, and you're known as the ADSB expert uh, because you've been doing this for so long. And um, some fun facts people might not know about you, you've flown aerobatics, uh, decathlons, extras, and I like to. I like this part of your bio. You said you won zero awards in that time frame, uh, but had lots of fun, which I suppose is all the point. So, uh, Pete, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about Free Flight, where you guys are from, what you've historically kind of offered, and and where you're going today. Sure. So, Free Flight is a company. We've been in business for more than 25 years now, through a couple different versions of uh, of companies. Uh, the impetus or the beginning, I should say, of free flight systems actually came out of the aviation product division of Trimble Aviation. Uh, they sold off all their aviation assets and went off and they do, they still exist and they do their marine stuff and they do, you know, on land stuff. Um, but company formed out of that, which was free flight systems in 2001. Uh, in 2007, we changed ownership to our current ownership and at that time sort of refocused uh, the energy and direction of the company into the next-gen aerospace uh, network. Uh, with free flight systems having a history of, uh, or a core technology of history in GPS, uh, it was a natural progression for a GPS company to make that transition into uh, the next-gen aerospace transformation. Hmm. So, yeah, you mentioned the history in GPS, and um, I was surprised you guys, uh, you have a bunch of firsts, industry firsts, around uh, various avionics, but uh, WASP GPS being one of them. Yeah, that's correct. There was our, uh, our 1201, which was a standalone blind GPS uh, box. It was the first airborne WASP receiver that was ever certified. Huh, very cool. But today, a big focus is ADSB. Uh, so tell us a, a little bit about just kind of your range of products. So we are an ADSB provider today for everything from piston single engine aircraft up through triple sevens and seven forty sevens. We literally, if you if it flies, we have a solution that'll work for it, which is sort of a unique position that not a lot of companies uh, in the marketplace share. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so just from from that standpoint, from being ADSB experts and, and offering that range of stuff. People are always talking about the mandate in terms of, you know, will it slide? Will it be pushed back? Do I really have to get in the shop these days? So give us give us your thoughts on what you think is going to happen on January 1st next year. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of pandemonium on January 1st of next year. <laughs> my honest opinion. Um, I, don't, I don't believe it to slide. I think, uh, I think best case scenario, there, there may be some uh, exceptions made and extensions allowed on a case-by-case basis. We saw with the FAA back in 2017, there was a mandate for HEMS, uh, helicopter EMS operators, who needed certain equipment to be equipped on the aircraft by April of 2017. And we're actually a, a manufacturer of radar altimeters, and that was a piece of that. 
And we saw that mandate come. Everybody waited to the last second, which was just an unbelievable surprise. Can't believe anybody waited to the last second for a mandate. And a lot of people ended up missing it. And a lot of people immediately after the mandate uh, were very, very panicked because they were uh, not allowed to operate their aircraft. And they didn't. Uh, they did not believe that the FAA was going to stick to their guns. And I think, uh, being the proximity of 2017 to 2020, I think that's a good example of what we can probably expect uh, from the market and also the FAA uh, as we move into the ADSB mandate. I think it's going to be just absolute pandemonium uh, come Q1 of 2020 when uh, when a lot of folks are not allowed in certain airspace that they're used to operating in anymore. Yeah, and, and it seems like the FAA with this policy uh, statement that they just put out this week might be showing a little bit of that uh, same toughness, uh, be, given that they're basically saying, well, you know, maybe you're going to get a, a waiver to operate in rural airspace, but it's not guaranteed by any means. Yeah, no, that uh, that memo definitely said, uh, to summarize, so save save your listeners the, the pain of reading four pages of FAA words. Yes, you can do it, but it's not going to be easy or fun and probably not always going to be allowed, is the general summary of that letter. So uh, they, they did define a process uh, to which you can uh, operate a non-rule compliant aircraft in rule compliant airspace. Uh, but it is stated several times through the memo that it will be approved on a case-by-case basis and approvals are not guaranteed. So given that, and given how many people still need to equip, uh, what are you guys hearing in terms of shop availability? Uh, if, if I sort of wake up today and decide, oh my gosh, I guess I need to buy something, uh, what are my chances of getting it by January 1st of next year? Uh, there's, there's still a chance. Um, it's not going to be the easiest process right now. Uh, shops are getting pretty full and, you know, we were just at the AEA event last week, actually in Palm Springs and, you know, I'm talking to a lot of uh, the 145 shops out there. Uh, these guys are booked from several weeks to several months out, but that's not to say it's impossible. There are, there are ways around, especially for, you know, your part 23 piston single engine guys, there's AMPs and IAs that can also, in, in some cases, perform these installations as well to make them compliant, which is a, you know, Another thing to be considering. Yeah, yeah. So when when somebody is is looking at this process, looking at the buying process, there are so many choices, and you know it starts with the whole you know nine seventy eight um, versus uh, ten ninety, and it's like how do you how do you even start by advising somebody where to go and and what things to consider? I mean, there's got to be kind of a flow tree there. Well, the first question always is where do you operate? You know, where and how do you operate? Um, are you always going to be flying the aircraft in the United States? Are you always going to be below 18,000 feet? Uh, the 978 becomes a very viable, uh, cost-effective option for you. After we establish that, if, if it's still, uh, if there's still questions, we ask, you know, about the existing equipment that's on board the aircraft. Or a 978 UAT system is, you know, I like to refer to it in terms of surgery. Putting a 978 system in is non-invasive uh, surgery on the aircraft. It's, you know, it goes in. You continue to still operate the aircraft the same way you do today. It sort of works behind the scenes uh, to provide ADSB compliance um, without having to completely overhaul the panel of the aircraft and you know possibly save thousands of dollars on that process. So one of the challenges is because because there are so many solutions and because every airplane is equipped a little bit differently, it's really a personal really personal decision. You can't say, well, all 172s should take this or all Bonanzas should take this. Yeah, and so we find that uh, yeah, it's a, it's a case by case scenario. You know, you can have. I mean, even, you know, if the aircraft are flown the exact same way and they're, they're flown on the same parameters, you pull two 
172s, you know, into the shop that are both from, you know, 1970s vintage, those two aircraft today are going to be equipped completely different from each other, even if they were, you know, one serial number off coming off the line from each other. Mm, yeah. The evolution of, of retrofits and modifications that have happened over the years to them, um, what makes sense for one may not make sense for the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess even in that standpoint, I've, uh, I've gotten ahead of myself a little bit because it seems like there's some question for folks as to whether even, you know, the difference between in and out, and it's like they buy an iPad and they get, uh, you know, a Stratus and they think, okay, I'm compliant. So uh, you must still be getting those types of questions. Shockingly, yes. <laughs> uh, we have some folks this week that are down at uh, Sun and Fun, and that was a question that came up. Or that was a comment that was fed back to me was in exchange with a customer who claimed he was just going to wait till it was cheaper and he could have it as a handheld that he could take airplane to airplane. And our response was, well, that's not really how the regulations are and that's not really going to allow it. And his response was, I'll find a way to beat the system. So <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of a problem with that mentality going into it. Uh, but I don't, I don't see a way. I mean, when you're transmitting ADSB, you're transmitting so much information that it's easy for the receiving people on the other end, the FAA in this case, to be able to tell if you're a compliant installation or not. The parameters and the, and the behaviors of the systems, they can actually pretty easily tell what equipment you have on board the aircraft and whether or not you're compliant. So I suppose for you know to be able to say it once and for all, um, portable just is not equipage. Portable is not compliant. And it's it's like that with anything on board the aircraft, you know, you, you can have, uh, you know, you can put an HSI on your iPad, but that doesn't mean you're going to be flying that thing in the IFR conditions anytime soon. Yeah. Or at least maybe you shouldn't be. Legally. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You brought up an interesting point that I think, uh, you know, people maybe talk about a little bit and I, I suppose, um, I don't know, I'm curious what your personal opinion is. And that's the idea of privacy. I mean, the FAA does have a lot more information now and will have a lot more information. And I'm curious what you think about that. So it's, it's, it's definitely an issue. The, the, the deal with privacy is privacy really doesn't change much uh, from customers that have already been flying for an extended period of time with MODES transponders. Moda, the, the, the issue with privacy started with MODES transponders. They were always transmitting all of this data out there. Uh, the difference was the FAA allowed the BARS program to go in and filter those out so that you couldn't uh, commercially harvest that information, if you will. Uh, the nice thing about 978 is uh, 978 does have an option for uh, anonymous mode. So if you are operating a 978 transponder and you're squawking VFR, as long as you're squawking 1200, uh, the system will default to what's referred to as anonymous mode so that you can go and fly and you just look like any other target out there, but they don't know uh, what your tail number is or where you came from or, or where you're going. Air traffic control will have a, a flight path on you, but they won't have uh, flight information such as tail number and so forth, uh, for security reasons. Uh, there was also, a, a, looks like MBAA has been working pretty hard on the privacy issue from the business jet side, and it looks like uh, we're starting to see some bits of information that looks like there may be a, uh, a process coming uh, in order to allow better privacy on those uh, 1090 equipped aircraft as well. So uh, while it is a challenge today, I, I do think it is something that is being taken very seriously. There will be viable, workable solutions 
uh, in the in the very near future uh, in order to address that. The other question I think, and the other the other uh, thing that people seem to believe. I mean, you mentioned uh, price for a few folks. You know, they're waiting for the price to come down. You know, we're pretty close to the mandate at this point. What do you think will happen in the market after January first, twenty twenty? Do you think will demand slide and and maybe prices slide with it, or what do you what do you foresee there? I think uh, as you know, and we use like I said, we use twenty seventeen as our case study with the with the Hems mandate. Um, the the high point in the process was right at the mandate, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a steep drop in demand. It was a it was a very smooth uh, arc right over the the mandate, and I imagine we're going to see that too uh, with ADSB for GA in Part 23. I think we're going to have a pretty consistent rate uh, in 2020 and possibly even trickling into the beginning half of 2021. Um, for business jets, I think it's going to be a mad dash in the first half of 2020, which definitely comes down to a shop uh, availability and shop rate uh, equipage. Uh, for airlines, it's a little bit different because airlines have, have an extension on the GPS piece of it, which is good news for uh, a GPS supplier such as Free Flight Systems who has, has, that, uh, has that market presence. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the airline, because I think there was some confusion when it came out that there was a little bit of a, a, a you know, an easing for them. Um, I think some people thought it was on the mandate entirely, but what it, what was it exactly? So the it was the 12555 extension that was allowed, which meant that uh, operators could apply for an extension to be completely compliant. In order to do that, though, they did have to meet certain criteria on board the aircraft, which is they had to have an ADSB compliant transponder. As long as they have a ADSB equipped transponder and they have a written plan published uh, to the FAA uh, around yeah. how they're going to equip their GPS, uh, they are allowed to operate with some additional parameters and some additional pre-flight activity associated with that uh, until 2024, I believe it is, uh, for the GPS. And why was that? Is it Are we talking older airframes that just didn't have the solutions in time or why were they granted that? And they were granted that because they 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 made a case to the FAA that there weren't solutions, there weren't cost-effective solutions available uh, that met the requirements that they needed in order to do that. Which uh, which is a, a common phrase across the entire aspect of aviation when, when talking about a mandate. But airlines had the negotiating power of their big and powerful and uh, spend a lot of money to operate in our airspace. So uh, they had a little bit more pull on that. Uh, we've since proven a lot of those opinions wrong uh, and have provided low-cost uh, GPS solutions that meet the requirements uh, for those types of aircraft. Someone today, you know, they're, they're listening to this and they think, oh man, okay, I guess I should, I should equip. Uh, what's the next steps? What, what do they do now? The number one step of anybody that's thinking about equipping right now is schedule the shop time. That's, that's going to be the, the number one hurdle that you're going to have to come across, which is getting your aircraft in. Find somebody that you're going to do the installation with and book it. Once you get that covered, then you start exploring the options. Okay, Pete, that's great advice. And um, if somebody wants to, if somebody's interested in free flight or they want some more information, how do they get in touch with you? Sure, they can visit our website. It's freeflightsystems.com or they can uh, always contact me directly. My email is pring at freeflightsystems.com. Thanks so much for having me. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Pete.
David. I was I was really impressed. I you know I knew Free Flight did ADSB. Obviously, I didn't realize the depth that they had uh, in products and how long they've been around. That's right. And again, they um, they have their hand in GA. They have their hand in military, commercial, just all over the place. And it's a significant company with a lot of resources. And it was good to hear a little bit more about that company. Yeah, great. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. We're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.